Good morning, church. Good to be back with you uh, this week. I want to say thank you to Pastor Ed for filling in last week's short notice for my family's sake. Uh, appreciate you, brother. Thank you for leading us last week. Thank you for leading us this morning in prayer. Uh, we are blessed. We are gifted by our pastors, uh, and they are gifts to our church to help us and uh, you served and shepherded our family well last week, both of you, Graham and Ed, so thank you for that. I'm grateful to be back uh, in God's Word in the book of Romans together. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have one, uh, there should be a black uh, copy of God's Word on a chair near you, and Romans 8 is on page 888. We got to remember this. We need to know this. Romans 8, page 888. We are going to be looking at in this series of Romans, uh, verse 12 through 17. Let me read. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Would you bow and let's ask the Lord again for His help after the reading of His Word. Father, we call on You by that name, because you have made that relationship as father and child available through Jesus Christ by your very Spirit. And it's in these Scriptures that we know that well. And I pray that we would recognize and, and learn and remember more of our new identity in the Spirit this morning. And that when we leave this place, we would live in those identities that we have in the Spirit. So God, help us. Jesus, thank you for making this possible. And Spirit, thank you for being with us always to the very end of the age. Be our help. Be our guide. Be our strength in this moment, I ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we came back in, from the new year after some time in Advent, back to Romans chapter 8, and uh, have enjoyed much our time studying in that. I've had two weeks to study this passage, so uh, we're, we're in trouble because I've got so much more um, wrestling with it and, and enjoying it. Uh, but last, uh, or two weeks ago, when we looked at 8, 1 through 11, I noted that there, there are uh, several new realities that we have. 
from being in the Spirit. Um, new realities such as living with no condemnation or being set free as we just sung, being set free from sin and death. Uh, we have the new reality uh, for at least those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth to live a perfect and sinless life and yet willingly laid down his life for us uh, on the cross, uh, was buried in the tomb, rose again on the third day. And for those of us who have believed on Jesus Christ for salvation from sin, forgiveness of our sin, for uh, that eternal life that He offers to us. He offers us uh, this new reality of life and peace right here, right now. And, and then goes beyond that to give us this hope of a resurrection that is coming in the end. That, that if Jesus died and was buried and physically rose from the dead and was given a resurrected body that was um, both similar to its old uh, self, but also glorified in, in a new way, we too will be resurrected, um, bearing some resemblance to our old self, but made whole and made afresh and glorified like, like Christ. We have these new realities uh, available to us. And you could stop at verse 11 and think, that's enough. Just that is enough to repent of my sin, enough to believe on Jesus Christ, enough to stop living for the things of this world because nothing in this world offers me those realities. Uh, I want to live for Christ. I want to follow Him. That would be enough. But we've got verse 12 and following. 1 through 11 are, are, are almost like the diving board into the deep end of what we have available to us. In Christ. I love diving boards. Any smart human being would love diving boards. And we've got this diving board before us, right, right at the end of verse 11, into some of the most deep and best truths of what are available to us. And so this week I've entitled them not realities, but identities. The realities are things that had been done for us, made available to us. No condemnation, set free, life and peace, resurrection. Here in verses 12 through 17, we see a couple new identities that are made available to those who are in Christ. Those who have the Spirit of Christ in us. Those of us who have called ourselves Christians, who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And I know... Um, myself included, that we're all looking for something to identify with. Uh, we're looking at different times and in different seasons of our life, we may identify with one thing or another to take uh, some sort of characteristic upon our life. I, I, I play sports, or I play an instrument, or I do this job, or I, I went to this school, or I like these this hobby, or this, that, or the other. 
But when that doesn't satisfy us, when that doesn't last, then we may identify with something else. And and not only does this happen with innocent things like a job and a team and a hobby, but it happens in a deeper sense too. When we don't find satisfaction with our life, then we may seek identity in another, claiming another gender. We may find an identity in a relationship, uh, even a, a... unbiblical relationship. We may find identity in immoral uh, actions and ways of living. We're seeking for identity, but the identity that is put here in, in Romans 8, 12 through 17 is better than any earthly temporary identity that you will find in this life. It, not only is it eternal versus temporary, it comes from the divine It comes from God Himself versus all of those other earthly identities that we may put on our our Twitter bio. And so we need to consider these so much uh, more seriously than we consider those other identities that we put on us. And there's a couple in Romans 8, 12-17, two specifically. The first one is debtors. And you may not think, well, I don't. I don't want to be a debtor. That's not something I want to have. But this is the identity that Paul highlights in verses 12 and 13. Read it with me. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The first new identity that we have, those of us who are in Christ, who have His Spirit, uh, is that we are debtors. Debtors to God in the Spirit. And Paul, in, in verses 1-11, through 11, went from the theoretical, talking about those who live in the, uh, set their, live in the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those people. But then in verse 9, he got personal. Uh, where he went from those, talking about generally those people, he, he said, you, however, are not in the flesh. And he got very specific to those who are in Christ. And here he goes another step further where he says, so then, brothers, we... And he includes himself in that category of those who are in Christ. And he even hints at what the next identity is that is to come. You may be able to find it in those Scriptures. But he says, brothers. So then, brothers, we, me and you together, we are debtors. Debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He talks about debtors, and debtors we know well as a financial term, and he's using this imagery here to help us to see who we are in, in debt to. And we know what it means to be in debt, most of us at least, uh, maybe because of a, a car payment that you pay every single month, or at least that gets deducted from your bank account every single month, and you see that number drop down several hundred dollars automatically. 
Uh, or maybe you know debt because of your house mortgage, and you know you're 30 years in for the running uh, of debt that you have to pay the bank back who has let you borrow this money. Or, or maybe you uh, know debt because for a season you've spent more than you had, more going out than you had coming in, and your credit cards are to the max. And you know the, the weight of what it feels to be in debt to the lender who has given you this money. Uh, maybe it's the college loans that you incurred years ago that are still uh, weighing over you. We know what it means to be debt. The people in the first century knew what it meant to be in debt. That's why Paul uses this language. And here he says that we're debtors to God. But we need to understand this rightly and correctly, lest we fall back into a gospel of works rather than a gospel of grace. The truth is, is that all human beings were debtors to God. Uh, We all are. We have sinned against God, and we owe Him a payment that honestly none of us could pay. It's just impossible to pay. We were in debt to God, born in debt to God with an amount and a sum that we could never pay ourselves because of our sin. And yet God, as we sang earlier, um, sent his one and only son to pay it all for us. Jesus paid the debt we owe to God. Jesus, his blood was the payment for our sin. And so, in one sense, our debt has been paid. Jesus paid it in full. We don't owe God anything as those who have repented of our sins and believed on Jesus Christ. And we ought to give thanks and praise and rest in, in that, that reality. Um, but in doing so, He has given us His Spirit. And when He gives us His Spirit, we then become in debt to Him to live in accordance with that Spirit that He has given us. Paul contrasts that with the flesh. He says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We need to think about what has the flesh given us that we are, ought to pay it back? Nothing except death. Nothing except sin and death. And yet so often we fall back, as Christians we fall back into living in accordance with the flesh as if we're in debt to the flesh thinking that we owe it something or that we're going to find something, some satisfaction, some realities, even some identity in the flesh that we're not going to find in God. And it's just not the case. If people were to look at our life and to inspect us, would they say that you live more like you're in debt to the flesh or more that you're in debt to God because He's given you the Spirit? We need to consider that. We need to question that. We need to uh, evaluate our lives. But Paul is saying that we're not in debt to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You would think that he would go on to say, we're in debt to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. But he doesn't say that. He knows that 
That's the reality. We can infer that from what he said that we're not in, in debt to. But he goes on and explains how we're to live in accordance with the Spirit, the Spirit whom we are in debt to in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so it's from those verses we infer that we're not debtors to the flesh, but debtors to God. He's given us His very self in His Spirit. We ought to then live in accordance with that Spirit. And when we do, we would live and enjoy life and peace with God and with one another in the church. You think about um, someone who has been sick uh, for a season and, and maybe um, a loved one, same blood type, healthy, is able to give them a part of themselves to be able to help that person who's sick. Maybe a kidney transplant uh, or something like that. It, it would be silly, in fact, and, and you would look at a situation where a healthy person gave part of themselves to a sick person who was not going to be able to live apart from this part of them. If they were given this new kidney and then continued to live in the way in which killed the former kidney, is kind of ridiculous. But in a sense, they've been given this gift. They've been given this new chance at life. They've been given this part of, of someone else, and they ought to live in accordance with that new gift. Live in a new way that would establish healthy rhythms to be able to sustain that new part of that person's body. We might understand that physically in regards to a transplant, but it's no different in regards to our relationship with the Lord. He's given us His very self. We ought to live in accordance with the Spirit whom the Lord has given us. Or we might think about it regarding debt and finances. Jesus told a parable uh, during His ministry here on the earth. It's recorded in Luke 19 and, and towards the end of Matthew. Uh, the parable of the talents and, and Jesus tells us a story of a nobleman who goes to a far country, but before leaving, he gives ten of his servants one mina each, one amount of money each. They're now in debt to the master um, to at least give that one debt, but that, that one mina back to him. But he's given it to them in hopes that they would live in accordance with that and at least bring back interest and put it to work and, and bring back even a greater amount of growth. And Jesus even says, engage in business until I come. And the story goes that when the master returns, several have taken the one mina and engaged in business and had several more minas to give back to them. They lived in accordance with that that they had been given from the master, but there was one who didn't. He had the one to give back, but he hadn't lived in accordance with the one that he had given to bring back more. 
and, and the nobleman says, you should have at least put it in the bank so that I could have interest when I came back. God has given us something much more than a mina, an amount of money. He's given us himself. We ought to live in accordance with his spirit as debtors to the spirit. Paul makes it even more clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, Paul says. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is using this language of debtors saying that Christ paid it all for you and gave His very Spirit to you. You're a temple now of Christ Himself. Live like it. Live in accordance like it. Don't live in accordance with the flesh. If you do, you will die. But if you live in accordance with the Spirit, you will live. And He tells us how to live in accordance with the Spirit. Uh, He says, "By, By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And here he uses really strong language. Putting to death the deeds of the body. For any of you who have grown up in church and have sat under good preaching and teaching, we know what that means. It's not only used here in Romans, it's used in several other places. But it's talking about killing Sin, killing temptation in our life. The Puritans had a word for this, putting to death. It was the mortification of sin. Fancy word, we don't use that often, that simply means putting to death, killing those things. John Owen writes in his uh, sermon, Mortification of Sin, he says, Do you mortify? That is, sin in the flesh? Do you make it your daily work to mortify? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he goes on to say that the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Let me say that again. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Christian church, it's not enough to delay sin and hope that it'll go away. It's not enough to distance yourself from sin in hopes that you won't want it anymore. It's not enough to distract yourself from sin in hopes that you will be enticed by something else. No, Jesus, His Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us to mortify sin, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We have to be killing sin, as John Owen said, or it will be killing us. We know this, don't you? 
Church, you know this. Christian, you know this. If you don't put to death sin in your life, it's going to eventually creep back up. If you don't seek help from the Lord in putting to death the deeds of the flesh and sin in your life, it's going to creep back up. If you don't ask for others' help in this room to put to death the deeds of your flesh, it's going to eventually creep back up. It's not enough to delay. It's not enough to distance. It's not enough to distract. We need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This, it's not just about uh, putting to death the fruit, the outward, external acts, the deeds of the flesh. We have to kill it at the root. You can take an, a, a baseball bat and go smash every apple off an apple tree and just go to town on it. But the next year, there's going to be a thousand more apples for you to be able to hit with the baseball bat. Instead of taking a bat to it, you've got to take an axe to it. And that's going to hurt. That may take a, a lot more unsatisfactory work, but it's what's going to stop apples from being produced in the end. The same is true in our life. We've been given the Spirit. We need to live in accordance with the Spirit. And when we do, when we live by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, we will live. We will live. We will enjoy the life that, that Jesus has called us to live. And this is hard work. We must destroy anything that gets in our way of following Jesus. We must demolish anything in our life that steals our affections from the Lord Jesus Himself. We must dismantle every source of temptation in this life so that we might more closely follow after Him. This is the way to life. Jesus himself says, for any who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's given you his spirit to help you deny yourself, to put to death the deeds of the body. Are you living in accordance with the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body? Spend some time this week. I was going to read them. I don't have time. Note these down. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. I'll just give you the first three words. Put to death. Let's get a few more. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Paul uses this language in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, but also in Galatians 5. 16 through 25, where he says the same thing, putting to death the deeds of the body. Martin Lloyd-Jones has probably the largest commentary on Romans ever produced. Uh, uh, 10, 20 volumes. I, I forget how many volumes it actually is. I don't have time to spend my week in Martin Lloyd-Jones 
uh, commentary, but some good commentaries that I've been reading have quoted him. He was a medical doctor, and he understands what this means well when he uses this language. He says we have to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, and then you will have really dealt with it. Jesus explained this idea of putting to death the deeds of the body in Matthew 5.29 when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. We're debtors. God has given us His very Spirit. And we're to live in accordance with the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. And when we do, we will enjoy life as God intended. And only fully will we get to enjoy that when He returns. But we're debtors. That's the first new identity that we have in the Spirit. But there's a second one. And the second one we see in verse 14. Not only are we debtors to God in the Spirit, but we're also sons of God in the Spirit. Or you could say daughters of God in the Spirit or children of God in the Spirit. All are meant right here in verse 14 through 17. Let me read it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul moves on to this second identity that we have in the Spirit as sons and daughters of God. Moving away from the financial imagery as a debtor to a family imagery and a relationship with Him. But even that filial relationship with God as our Father and we as His children, there's still a financial aspect, word and imagery used in this a little bit later, and it's heirs. We'll get to it in a bit. But he says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That is to say that not all are sons of God. Pastor Ed led us well this morning in our prayer for the nations talking about the sanctity of human life. And he said that all are made in the image of God. And he's right. All human beings, male and female, are made in the image of God. But the Bible makes also clear, not all, though, are sons of God. Only those who have believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, have been adopted by God into His family. This is true of 
the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. There was a defined, distinct people of God who were known as His children. The children of Israel. Uh, the children of God in the New Testament. And so if not all are sons of God, then we need to know what it takes to be a son of God, lest we miss it. And it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And led is a good translation for the Greek word ago, Jesus, this word is used describing Jesus when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism. Not forced, um, not demanded, not driven out, but was led. A gentle leading, a prompting, an enabling. Again, going back to Martin Lloyd Jones. This same word is used in Matthew 7-4 when it's describing pulling a splinter out rather than, you know, when it's talking about the splinter versus the log. In pulling a splinter out, it ought to be led out, gently probed out. Uh, while some, though, think that this word means a driving and a force. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says to those, Here's a man who's going to perform a very delicate eye operation. So if you insist that this word always means force or thrust or drive, let me express the hope that if ever you have a foreign object in your eye, you may not be treated by such a violent optician. This gentle probing is what this word really means. Not a driving you. Not a forcing you out. A propelling you. An enabling you to follow. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. And specifically, son here because of the language that's used later regarding being an heir that we'll get to later. But he also goes on to speak of children of God. In verse 15, he contrasts that with uh, the spirit of slavery. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I think... In reading several translations of this this week, I felt that the NIV was really helpful uh, this week. It says in verse 15, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 7 was clear that we were bound to sin and death like slaves, but have been set free. And so Paul is saying, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery that would send you back to the way that you used to live, to the, to the fear that you used to live in. 
No, you've received a spirit that's brought about your adoption so that you don't have to fear. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to worry anymore. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Because in going out from this place, whether you fall back into sin or being tempted by Satan or being uh, discouraged by others, you fear your fear facing God. You doubt your salvation. You, you wonder whether or not your eternity is secure with the Lord. And this verse is making it abundantly clear that God didn't give you a spirit so that you'd fall back into fear, so that you would fear Him and obey Him in hopes that because you were a debtor in that sense again. No, He's given you His Spirit so that you might live in accordance with the Spirit and know what it is to have assurance. Assurance so much so that when you pray, you can call God your Father. That's the type of assurance that we have from the Lord in these verses. Being sons being daughters, being children. We've been given the privilege to be able to call God our Father. Not going back to the old way of being enslaved. Paul writes about this in Galatians 4. In verse 8-9, through 9, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But... But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, have you turned back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul says, no. You didn't receive a spirit to fall back into slavery. You received a spirit to be adopted as sons so that you could call God your Father. So that when you pray to Him, you can pray to Him and call Him Abba, Father. Adoption in in the first century um, was intentional. Um, it, It really wasn't even done out of kindness and out of empathy towards those who didn't have sons, but out of um, preservation of a family. Uh, To be able to carry on the name and to be able to pass on the inheritance to the next. There was an intentionality, a choosing of the father to the son. And yet when that happened, there was no second-class citizenship in the family. They were sons. They were heirs. They had the name and they were to take the inheritance. And adoption in God's family is no different. It was intentional by the Lord Himself choosing uh, us to be His sons and His daughters, paying the price that it would take to accomplish that adoption putting our name on him on putting his name on us and even having an inheritance awaiting us this is the adoption this is the privilege that we have when we receive the spirit through faith in in Jesus Christ 
In fact, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, in his chapter about adoption, I think it's probably one of the greatest chapters ever written. I've read it multiple times. You ought to buy the book just for that chapter. This is what he says about adoption. Our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Now listen. Justification is the primary blessing. Kind of the most important blessing. Because it meets our primary, most important spiritual need. And it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else is our salvation uh, everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it adoption included but this is not to say that justification is our highest blessing of the gospel adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with god that it involves to be right with god the judge is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. I, I think that puts it so well. This is why I said Romans 8, 1 through 11 is like the diving board into the deeper things of that. It's one thing to know that you're justified and able to stand before God. That would be enough. But God went beyond that to make you sons and daughters, children of God, able to not only call Him Yahweh, but to call Him Father. So that when you pray, you open your prayers like Jesus taught us to open our prayers. How did He teach the disciples when they said, Jesus, teach us how we ought to pray? What were his first two words? Our Father. And in that moment, Jesus taught them that his Father in heaven, through faith in him, could become their Father as well. Our Father. And not only that, when Paul writes, Abba, Father, here, and when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, there, he's saying both uh, in Aramaic and in Greek, that anyone, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, is able to be adopted into the family of God. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, this reality, uh, this identity, rather, is available to them, this adoption. And it's true, and yet we have to learn to live in light of this new identity. We know, maybe in our minds, that we're sons and daughters and children of God. But we grow ever more as long as we live in light of this new identity that we have in Christ. The same is true in our family. I'm not an adopted child here on this earth, but I am an adopted father. And I have seen this played out. That in the first days and weeks and even the first months and year of our time with Samuel, especially the first days and weeks, any, who were we different from anyone 
else that, that, that might look like us. He was willing to go with anyone. In fact, on the plane ride home, he would have much rather had the three people sitting in front of us than the two of us on our row. And he would have gone home with them gladly. Yet over those years, he has grown to know what it means to be a part of our family, to have our name. And he'll always be growing in that. And the same is true for you, Christian. It didn't make it any less true when you first put your faith in Jesus that you became a son or a daughter, a child of God. But have you not grown in your understanding of what it means that even though you fall short of wearing the family name well, you've been able to come back and say, Father, I've sinned. I've fallen short. But I know you sent your one and only son to pay it all for me. And I want to live in accordance with the Spirit again. You have grown in your knowledge and understanding of what it means to be a child of God as the years have gone by. And you'll continue to know what that means until one day you breathe your last or Christ returns and you stand before Him and are able to say, Father. Be able to eat with Him. To be able to call Christ your brother. This is why we have this language even in the church. If God is our Father and we are His sons and daughters, then in the family of God, we're brothers and sisters. This is a sweet reality that we have available to us. And Paul goes on, he says, the Spirit, capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit, Himself bears witness with our spirit or to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. When we are made sons and daughters and children of God, not only is that identity true of us, but one of the, the other realities is that there is an inheritance waiting for us. And I'm not just talking about golden streets and mansions and, and all of the things that we have to look forward to in heaven. Because the greatest thing about heaven is God himself. And the greatest inheritance that we have in store for us is being reunited with our adopted father, God himself in heaven. And we have this inheritance. We have this assurance. We have this promise made to us that we have this inheritance available to us. And this inheritance is, is important. Again, it gets back to that financial imagery that we, were, that we had been given the Spirit. And so now we're debtors to live in accordance with the Spirit. But as sons and daughters, we have an inheritance waiting us. We have a promised inheritance that will one day be given to us. Funny enough, this week... If you're reading a part of our church Bible reading plan, 
we read about an inheritance, did we not? In the book of Joshua. Those chapters which some of you <laughs> just love to skip right on over. Oh, yeah. Just uh, When I get to those, one of you texted me this week, said, I do what I do when I get to the genealogies. I just skip to the next chapter. But in those passages, we have God's provision for his people, a promised inheritance that we have in store for us. And one of the funny things in there is in the midst of all of those details, there was daughters of Zahelophad. Did you, did you skip over that or did you read it? The daughters of Zahelophad. They weren't sons. Zahelophad didn't have any sons. He only had daughters. But by the word of the Lord himself, God said, the daughters too will have an inheritance. Hinting forward to the fact that in God's kingdom, sons and daughters will be made children of God. And not only that, there was another group of people in Joshua who didn't get an inheritance. You remember who that was? Uh, the Levites, they didn't get a segment of the land. They, they were given certain cities, but they didn't have a segment of land. And you know why? It said, because the Lord God himself is their inheritance. And is that not true of us? Yeah, there is a place awaiting for us. But the Lord our God, Father, Abba, is our greater inheritance that we have waiting for us in the end. We have that waiting for us. But, but Paul goes on and he says, how can we be sure of this? He says in the very end of verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering is the way of Christ. He said, if any would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. The means by which Christ most suffered. We too, if we are to be followers of Christ, how do we think that we could escape the suffering that he himself was willing to endure for us? The way of Christ is the way of suffering. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Christian, when you suffer for the sake of Christ, when you suffer in the name of Christ as a son or a daughter or a child of God, it ought to give you great assurance that God is your Father and that, you, that Christ is your brother and that you're experiencing the same thing He experienced with the and he's given you his spirit to be able to persevere and endure through it until Christ in all his glory is revealed to us. Provided we suffer with him, or 
Same word as it says uh, back in verse 9, if in fact, if in fact we suffer with Him or since we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Is that true of you? These identities are true of you if you are a Christian. Are you living in them? Are you living in light of these identities as a debtor to God because He's given you the Spirit of Christ? Are you living in accordance with the Spirit? Are you living in the identity as a son or a daughter of God? Or are you just simply living in in the identity as one who's been freed with God as your judge. Know that there's so much more. God has gone to extreme lengths to make this relationship available to us. J.I. Packer says that every Christian be, ought to be able to say this to themselves and ought to say this often. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. Let me ask you these questions he puts as our conclusion. And I pray that the Spirit would use these questions to cause you to be able to consider whether or not you're living in light of these identities. Ask yourself, do I understand my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God? Have I sought full assurance of my adoption? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? Do I treat God as my Father in heaven, loving, honoring, obeying, seeking and welcoming His fellowship, and trying in everything to please Him as a human parent would want his child to do? Do I think of Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord, as my brother too? Bearing to me not only a divine authority, but also a divine human sympathy. Do I think daily how close He is to me? How completely He understands me? And how much as my kinsman, Redeemer, He cares for me? Have I learned to hate the things that displease my Father? Am I sensitive to the evil things to which He is sensitive? Do I make a point of avoiding them and putting them to death lest I grieve Him? Do I look forward daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God, their Father and of the Lamb, their brother and their Lord? Have I felt the thrill of this hope? 
Do I love my Christian brothers and sisters with whom I live day by day in a way that I shall not be ashamed of in heaven when I think back over it? Am I proud of my father and of his family to which by his grace I belong? Does my family likeness appear in me? God humble us. God instruct us. God make us his own true children. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help all of us who are in Christ, those of us who have repented of our sins and believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to be saved and to experience eternal life now and forevermore, that we would live in light of those identities having become more aware of them this morning, we would live in the power, in the leading, in the help of your Holy Spirit to live in light of them today better than we did yesterday. But God, I wonder if there's someone here who knows in the depths of their heart that they have not received the Spirit of Christ. For they have not repented of their sins and believed on you. They've sought their identity in everything underneath the sun as Solomon did and noted in Ecclesiastes. And yet was found everything wanting more than God. God, I pray that if there's someone here who has found every identity that they've put upon themselves lacking here on this earth, that they would take the identity that you offer them through repentance of their sin and faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose for them, who paid their debt first and foremost of their sin to God, but who also gave his very spirit to be with them forever, enabling them to walk and to be holy as you are holy, and who also assures them that they are sons and daughters of God, awaiting an inheritance who is God himself. God, I pray that they would take hold of the identity that is made available to them in Jesus Christ through faith this morning. And God, may we, as we stand to worship and close our time gathering together as brothers and sisters, may we worship you, draw near to you as Father afreshly by your Spirit's help this morning. And may we praise Christ who is our greater brother, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship as sons and daughters of God this morning.